I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Thank you, Mariam. Uh, a Swedish novelist, uh, Henning Monkel, uh, tells of an experience in uh, Mozambique at the peak of the hideous atrocities of the apartheid era. He describes how he saw, he was walking towards the village, he saw a man uh, walking towards him in ragged clothes, uh, in his words, in his deep misery, the wretched survivor had painted shoes on his feet in a way to defend his dignity when everything was lost. Uh, he had found the colors from the earth and he had painted shoes on his feet. Uh, scenes like that will evoke uh, many poignant memories among people who've witnessed uh, cruelty and degradation and also the steady resistance of the uh, Samidin borrow Raja Shahada's term for the uh, those who endure a uh, remarkable book on Palestinians under occupation uh, uh, 30 years ago. Uh, like many of you, and in fact much less than many of you, I've witnessed uh, many scenes like that throughout the world over many years. Uh, once again, last October, when I was able to visit Gaza for the first time. I tried earlier, but couldn't make it. Uh, greeting me on my return home uh, were the reports on the latest outburst of uh, shocking crimes, the November Israeli assault, uh, supported by the United States and uh, tolerated politely by Europe as usual. Uh, one of the first reports I received was a photograph uh, by a young Gaza journalist, a man I've known for some years, who I met again in Gaza. Uh, the photograph showed a doctor in a hospital ward uh, holding the hideously charred corpse of a murdered infant. The doctor is the director and uh, a head of surgery at the Khan Yunus Hospital in the south of Gaza, where actually a few days earlier I had heard his passionate appeal for drugs and surgical equipment so that patients would not have to writhe in agony while awaiting simple surgery that cannot be performed for lack of facilities. As the uh, November attack exploded, uh, the United Nations released its uh, weekly review of the permanent uh, humanitarian crisis in Gaza it reported that 40% uh, of essential drugs are out of stock, consequence of the Israeli blockade and Western complicity, which we should not forget. 
uh, and the unwillingness of the new Egyptian government to offend the masters. It appears that the, according to credible reports, that the borders are still under the control of uh, Mubarak's uh, dreaded Muhabarat, secret police, which is closely linked to the CIA and Israeli Mossad. Uh, just last week, I received another article by the same Gaza journalist, which you may have seen, uh, describing the terrible impact of the Morsi government's uh, latest assault against the people of Gaza. It has devised a new way to block the tunnels that are a lifeline for people imprisoned under harsh siege and constant attack, uh, flooding them with uh, filthy sewage. The same day's news uh, brought a report by the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem on a new device adopted by the Israeli army to overcome the ingenuity of the Samidin in coping with tear gas, spraying protesters and homes with powerful jets of raw sewage. sewage. This is punishment for the weekly nonviolent protests against uh, Israel's uh, illegal separation wall, actually an annexation wall. So more evidence that uh, great minds have similar thoughts uh, in this kind of case combining criminal repression with a useful humiliation. Uh, the tragedy of Gaza uh, dates back to 1948. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians uh, fled in terror or were forcibly expelled uh, uh, across the border by the conquering Israeli forces. They actually continued to truck them across the border uh, after the official ceasefire uh, for at least four years, we've recently learned. Uh, recent Israeli scholarship, uh, notably the, the very important work of Avi Raz, uh, reveals, uh, cites documentary evidence, that the government's goal was to drive the refugees uh, into the Sinai, and if feasible, also the rest of the population of Palestine. These uh, long-standing goals uh, may well be a factor contributing to Egypt's reluctance to open the border to free passage of people and goods uh, barred by the cruel uh, Western-backed uh, Israeli siege. Uh, getting rid of the Arabs of Gaza was only one facet of much broader goals. Uh, during the 1948 expulsions, uh, Israeli government Arabists predicted that the refugees would either assimilate elsewhere or would be crushed and die, while most of them would turn into human dust and the waste of society and join the most impoverished classes in the Arab countries. Uh, as for the Arabs of what we call the land of Israel themselves, uh, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion held that they have only one function left to them, uh, to run away. The causes of the refugee flight are no longer uh, seriously in question. Uh, there are very few who would uh, question the conclusions of the most prominent Israeli historian of the topic, uh, Benny Morris. In his words, the refugee problem was caused by attacks by Jewish forces on Arab villages and towns and by the inhabitants' fear of such attacks 
compounded by expulsions, atrocities, rumors of atrocities, and by the crucial Israeli cabinet decision in June 1948, right in the middle of the atrocities, uh, to bar a refugee return, uh, leaving the Palestinians crushed with some 700,000 driven into exile. Uh, Morris is critical of Israeli atrocities, in part because they're too limited. Uh, Ben-Gurion's great error, he says, perhaps a fatal mistake, was not to have cleansed the whole country, uh, the whole land of Israel, as far as the Jordan River. Uh, there's actually evidence just appeared in the last few days from uh, recently declassified uh, Israeli cabinet records that uh, Ben-Gurion apparently had the same, the same reaction to the failure, the fatal mistake of not completing the purification of the land, as it's called. Uh, from the uh, earliest days, uh, Arabs were regarded as an alien implant in the land of Israel. Uh, as the Balfour Declaration was released, uh, Chaim Weizmann, who was, you know, Israel's first president, the most respected Zionist figure, uh, he remarked that the, the British had informed him that in Palestine there are a few hundred thousand Negroes, Schwarzes, actually, he said, uh, but that's a matter of no significance. Uh, Weizmann, in turn, had uh, informed Lord Balfour that the issue known as the Arab problem in Palestine will be of merely local character, and in effect, anyone cognizant of the situation it does not consider it a highly significant factor. So uh, displacement of the inhabitants by a Jewish settlement raises no moral issue. Uh, a later president, Israeli president, Chaim Herzog, also incidentally a labor dove, uh, he articulated the basic guidelines in 1972. The date's important. This is often attributed to Menachem Begin and Likud, but it's not. It's a old Labor Party program. He said, uh, I do not deny the Palestinians any place or stand or opinion on every matter, but certainly I am not prepared to consider them as partners in any respect in a land that has been consecrated in the hands of our nation for thousands of years. Uh, for the Jews of this land, there cannot be any partner. That's the doves that I'm quoting, the humanists. Uh, Lord Balfour himself, who was a devoted Christian Zionist, uh, he expressed uh, similar views. Now, these were actually quite a common element of uh, elite Christian Zionism, which long predates Jewish Zionism. It included uh, leading figures in the United States as well. It was primarily a British phenomenon. Uh, it, uh, they were immersed in the holy book uh, with lessons that uh, the land of Israel was promised to the Jews. Others are interlopers, uh, Woodrow Wilson, Harry Truman, many others. That's, for example, why one of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's leading advisors, an important cabinet member, described the Jewish return to Palestine as the most remarkable event in history. Uh, in the United States, a traditional elite Christian Zionism is now buttressed by an enormous right-wing Christian movement, passionately pro-Israel, deeply anti-Semitic, forms 
much of the current base of the current Republican Party. It's important to recognize that, to understand lots of things that take place regularly, like the Chuck Hagel hearings uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, Christian Zionism is uh, an important factor in shaping policy towards Israel-Palestine from early years. There are others. It's noteworthy, for example, that uh, the strongest support for Israel in the international arena comes from uh, the countries that are called the Anglosphere, uh, Britain and its offshoots, uh, U.S., Canada, and Australia. These are unusual in the history of imperialism and that there are settler colonial societies uh, based on extermination or expulsion of indigenous populations in favor of a higher race. And in them, such behavior is kind of instinctively considered unnatural and praiseworthy. So what Israel's doing looks entirely normal, quite apart from the uh, religious element. Now, the crucial factors, certainly since 1967, are strategic and economic and still prevail, uh, but others shouldn't be overlooked. Well, going back to Gaza, uh, after Israel's 1967 conquests, its torture took new forms, uh, too many, too awful to review. Uh, all seemed to be pretty much under control until December 1987, when the Intifada suddenly broke out, first in Gaza, spreading quickly throughout the territories, uh, largely nonviolent. It stimulated quite impressive popular organization. Anyone who visited, I was there, could see that. Uh, large respects. Uh, revolt against the feudal society, uh, the Palestinian society. Uh, it elicited brutal repression, became, reached its peak of savagery under the orders of uh, Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin, another admired dove. Uh, he informed a Peace Now delegation at the peak of the state crimes that uh, meaningless U.S. dialogue with the PLO was designed to grant uh, Israel, I'm quoting him, at least a year to suppress the uprising by force. Uh, the inhabitants of the territories are subject to harsh military and economic pressure. Uh, Rabin explained that in the end they will be broken, abandoning, abandoning their hopes for a life of dignity. Uh, Gaza was placed under closure at that time, breaking any connection to the rest of Palestine. Uh, this was extended shortly after, within the framework of the Oslo Accords of 1993, which, if anyone cares, declared that Gaza and the West Bank are an indivisible territorial unity which cannot be separated. U.S. and Israel were doing the opposite. And that remains U.S.-Israeli policy to the present. It's quite significant. Separation of the two regions guarantees that if any limited autonomy is gained in the West Bank. It will have no access to the outside world except through Jordan. And that's being barred by the systematic expulsion of the inhabitants of the Jordan Valley, uh, expulsions that the Israeli press accurately call, calls uh, Tihur Babika, purification of the valley, cleansing of the valley. Uh, these are programs that have slowly reduced its population from 300,000 
1967 to less than 60,000 today. They continue steadily with extreme cruelty. Uh, we'll soon be commemorating the 20th anniversary of the Oslo Accords. Uh, they were hailed at the time as a historic breakthrough on the path towards resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict, and not universally hailed, of course, uh, certainly not by prominent Palestinian figures who could see easily what's happening. Among them was Raja Shahada. He was Palestinian, Palestine's leading legal specialist. He'd been trying in vain uh, for years to block uh, Israel's violations of international law in the territories. And he recognized right away that the accords were a surrender in the interests of um, Israel and the uh, Tunis-based PLO leadership, which was being marginalized within the territories, but is now restored to power through the side channel in Oslo. Uh, another one was Edward Said, who saw exactly what was happening and condemned the capitulation at once. Uh, another was uh, historian uh, Rashid uh, Khalidi. He was actually an advisor to the Palestinian negotiators at the Madrid negotiations. Uh, he described the Oslo agreements as an infernal trap. Uh, still another was uh, Haider Abdel Shafi. He's probably the most respected Palestinian within the territories. He headed the Palestinian delegation at the U.S.-run Madrid negotiations, and he refused to capitulate to U.S.-Israeli demands. He insisted that any agreement must, at the very least, bar illegal Israeli settlement in the territories. Now, that issue was ignored at Oslo, and Abdel Shafi refused to attend the signing of the ceremony on the White House lawn, uh, described as a day of awe in the American press. Uh, there were many illusions about Gaza, but no basis for them whatsoever. Uh, to understand what was taking place, it was sufficient to read the short several pages of the Declaration of Principles, the document that emerged. Uh, these were quite explicit about satisfying Israel's demands and completely silent on Palestinian national rights. Uh, Article 1 of the Declaration states that the end result of the process, notice the end result when everything's finished, uh, is to be a permanent settlement based on Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. Uh, anyone familiar with diplomacy knows that these resolutions say nothing at all about Palestinian rights, apart from a vague reference to just settlement of the refugee problem, no mention of Palestinians. Uh, there are UN resolutions uh, referring to Palestinian national rights, uh, but these were ignored in the Declaration of Principles. So if the culmination of the peace process would be as clearly articulated in the Declaration of Principles, then Palestinians could kiss goodbye to any hopes for some meaningful form of uh, autonomy of national rights in the former Palestine. Uh, the assault on the people of Gaza mounted very sharply in January 2006 when Palestinians committed one of their major crimes. Uh, in the first free election in the Arab world, they voted the wrong way. Uh, 
such insubordination conflicts uh, uh, very sharply with the, uh, the really existing passion for democracy that's regularly proclaimed by uh, Western leaders and the political class. And at once, uh, the U.S. and Israel, with uh, Europe uh, toddling obediently behind, as it usually does, uh, instituted uh, harsh measures to punish the miscreants. Actually, punishment became even more severe a year, year later when Gazans committed an even worse crime. Uh, immediately uh, uh, after the elections, uh, with their unwelcome outcome, uh, Washington turned to standard operating procedure when uh, criminal populations vote improperly, prepare a military coup. This was to be led by Fatah strongman Muhammad Dahlan. Uh, the elected government preempted the coup. Uh, that's an event denounced in the West as Hamas's violent takeover of Gaza, the context suppressed. It's bad enough to vote the wrong way in a free election, but uh, preventing a U.S.-run military coup to overthrow the government, uh, that's a truly unspeakable crime. And accordingly, the siege and uh, the other punishments were sharply increased in retaliation. Uh, we then move on to Operation Cast Lead, other atrocities. I won't review the shocking story, uh, which Westerners should know by heart, uh, given their critical role throughout. Well, throughout these years, uh, Gaza has been a showcase for violence of every imaginable crime kind. Uh, the record shows such... Uh, sadistic and very carefully planned atrocities as Operation Cast Lead, uh, called infanticide by the Norwegian physician Mats Gilbert, who worked uh, tirelessly at Gaza's Al-Shifa Hospital with his dedicated Palestinian and Norwegian colleagues right through the criminal assault. The term infanticide is appropriate. Uh, hundreds of children were massacred. And uh, from there, the violence ranges through just about every kind of cruelty that uh, humans have used their higher mental faculties to devise, uh, up to the pain of exile that Edward, Edward Said wrote about so eloquently. Uh, this is particularly stark in Gaza, where older people can still look across the border towards the homes a few miles away from which they were driven or to be more precise, they could do that if they were able to approach the border without being killed. Uh, one form of punishment has been to close off the Gaza side of the border. That includes almost half the arable land, according to the leading academic scholar of uh, Gaza and Harvard's uh, Sarah Roy. Uh, while a showcase for the human capacity for violence and humiliation Gaza is also an inspiring exemplar of the demand for dignity. The first phrase one hears in Gaza when uh, asking about personal aspirations is for a life of dignity. The distinguished uh, human rights lawyer, internationally known human rights lawyer, Raji Surani, uh, writes from his Gaza home that what has to be kept in mind is that the occupation and the absolute closure 
is an ongoing attack on the human dignity of the people in Gaza in particular and all Palestinians generally. It is systematic degradation, humiliation, isolation, fragmentation of the Palestinian people. Uh, while bombs were once again raining down on defenseless civilians in Gaza last November, uh, uh, he repeated that we demand justice and accountability. We dream of a normal life in freedom and dignity. And uh, others uh, perceive the same reality in The Lancet, leading international medical journal, a visiting Stanford physician who was appalled by what he witnessed, described Gaza as something of a laboratory for observing an absence of dignity, a condition that has devastating effects on physical, mental, and social well-being. Still quoting him, the constant surveillance from the sky, collective punishment through blockade and isolation, the intrusion into homes and communications, uh, restrictions on those trying to travel or marry or work uh, make it difficult to live a dignified life in Gaza. A young uh, a woman professional who managed to escape from Gaza to Canada, doctor there, Vada uh, Agil is her name. She writes about her a couple of weeks ago about her 87-year-old grandmother who's still trapped in the Gaza prison. Uh, before her expulsion, she writes, uh, she owned a house, farms, and land, and she enjoyed honor, dignity, and hope. And amazingly, like Palestinians rather generally, she hasn't given up hope. So Akil continues, when I saw my grandmother in November 2012, she was unusually happy, right in the midst of the latest atrocities. Uh, surprised by her high spirits, I asked for an explanation. She looked me in the eye and, to my surprise, said that she was no longer worried about her native village and the life of dignity that she has lost for her irrevocably. When I see you, her grandmother said, I know that our native village, uh, long ago destroyed, is in your heart, and I also know that you're not alone in your journey uh, don't be discouraged. We're getting there. Uh, the call for dignity resounds through the Arab Spring, uh, which, despite all of its uncertain outcomes, is doubtless a development of historic significance. Prominent Lebanese commentator Rami Khouri uh, writes that the process at hand now in Tunisia and Egypt will continue to ripple through the entire Arab world, as ordinary citizens realize that they must seize and protect their birthrights of freedom and dignity. Uh, the uh, uprising, as you know, was sparked by the self-immolation of Muhammad Bouazizi in reaction to his humiliating and degrading treatment. Muhammad did what he did for the sake of his dignity, his mother recounts. Uh, on the anniversary of his suicide, a cart statue, he was a, had a, sold things from a cart, a cart statue was unveiled in his honor in the town where he carried out the action that triggered the uprising and spread throughout Middle East, North Africa. Now, the ceremony was attended by Tunisia's first elected president, 
who thanked him and uh, those uh, he inspired for bringing dignity to the entire Tunisian people. Now, in the oil dictatorships, uh, the uprisings have been suppressed, uh, often by violence, uh, much to the relief of Western powers, uh, but not entirely. So in Kuwait, while uh, protesters were fleeing from the riot police, a Kuwaiti political scientist commented that people want dignity and political participation and equality before the law and not a revolution. Not the Kuwaiti citizens, at least. The great majority who do the work might have other ideas in mind. Uh, such uh, driving sentiments of oppressed people extend far beyond the Arab Spring. We've just passed the centenary of the great textile strike of uh, immigrant workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts, near where I live, uh, led by the Wobblies, who played a leading role in uh, the labor movement until it was crushed a few years later by Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare. Uh, the, the strikers won, uh, won the strike under the banner Bread and Roses, now a famous slogan, sustenance and dignity. And today, uh, immigrant workers in uh, immigrant activists in the United States uh, organize in what they call the Immigrant Dignity Campaign. The lively labor press of the early Industrial Revolution uh, bitterly condemned the rising industrial system uh, for depriving those driven to the mills of their dignity as free human beings. Uh, the early 1970s uh, witnessed the last militant strike wave in the United States uh, before the labor movement has once again been crushed under the neoliberal assault on the population, which is taking place everywhere. You're suffering from it here. Uh, the strikes were called for, were a call for bread and roses, uh, for workers' control of the workplace uh, so that they could uphold their basic dignity. And that continues today with the spread of uh, worker-owned enterprises and cooperatives on a rather impressive scale. Now, these aspirations have been suppressed by violence throughout history, uh, but the spark's never extinguished, and it continues to burst into flames. Now, the search for dignity is understood instinctively by those who hold the clubs and who recognize that Apart from violence, the best way to undermine it is by humiliation. That's second nature in prisons everywhere. It reaches its sordid extreme in places like Bagram and Guantanamo, portrayed uh, unforgettably by Victoria Britain, who's recently broadened the shameful picture uh, to include the fate of the women left behind. Uh, the normal practice in Israeli prisons is gained some attention in the last couple of weeks uh, because of the concern that it might spark another uprising, Third Intifada, after the death of a young man, uh, Arafat uh, Jaradat. He was arrested at his home at midnight, of course. That's to properly intimidate the family. He was charged with uh, having thrown stones in a Molotov cocktail a few months earlier during Israel's November attack on Gaza. 
He was healthy and vigorous when arrested. Uh, he was last seen alive by, in court by his lawyer, who describes him as doubled over, scared, confused, and shrunken. Uh, the court reacted by remanding him to another 12 days of what's called interrogation, and he was found dead in his cell. Israeli journalist uh, Amira Haas writes that uh, Palestinians do not need an Israeli investigation. For them, Jaradat's death is much bigger than the tragedy he and his family have suffered. From their experience, uh, Jaradat's death is proof that the Israeli system routinely uses torture. And from their experience, they know that the goal of torture is not only to convict someone, but to deter and subjugate an entire people by humiliation, degradation, terror, uh, familiar features of repression at home and abroad. And uh, Europeans should not overlook their willing and significant participation in the latest phase of Washington's reign of torture. I say latest phase because there are ample precedents. Uh, the Open Society Institute just released its study called Globalizing Torture, a CIA Secret Detentions and Extraordinary Rendition. You know what that means, sending people to the most miserable dictatorships that can be tortured properly without us saying we're doing it. Uh, the study reveals that uh, 54 countries participated in the campaign. That included most of Europe and most of the rest of the world. Actually, one region of the world was exempt, Latin America. It virtually alone, it refused to participate in globalizing torture. And that's quite a remarkable fact. Uh, only a few years ago, Latin America remained uh, Washington's obedient backyard, did what it was told. Uh, and it was also, during this period, one of the torture capitals of the world, and not any longer. Uh, one can easily see why Western elites are so concerned about the threat of democracy and so committed to limiting it, most recently in the Middle East. Uh, the need for humiliating those who raise their heads is an ineradicable element of the imperial mentality. Just cite one typical case. Uh, there's a highly regarded liberal commentator of the New York Times, also a Mideast specialist, Thomas Friedman. Uh, he was asked on TV for his recommendations for the U.S.-U.K. occupying army in Iraq a couple of months after the invasion. And his answer was elegant and forthright. I'll quote him. He said, we needed to go over there, basically, take out a very big stick right in the heart of that world. What Muslims needed to see was American boys and girls going from house to house, from Basra to Baghdad, and saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think we care about our open society? You think this bubble of terrorism fantasy, we're just going to let it grow? Well, suck on this, namely what they did. So in short, a severe dose of humiliation administered by American boys and girls uh, will teach the terrified uh, women and children whose houses 
uh, they break into, uh, teach them that they better stop terrorizing us. Well, as usual, it elicited uh, a little comment, uh, apart from people who are called uh, misguided sentimentalists. Uh, the need not just to control, but also to humiliate the victims is second nature to political leaders as well, as case after case. Uh, one interesting case was in 1988. It's the year when the Palestinian National Council formally accepted the international consensus on a two-state settlement. Uh, the U.S. by then was becoming an international laughingstock with its unwillingness to hear Yasser Arafat's call for peaceful diplomacy. And the reasons were explained by Secretary of State George Shultz in his memoirs, also respected statesman. Uh, he informed his boss, uh, Ronald Reagan, that Arafat was saying in one place, unk, unk, uh, unk, and he was saying in another place, kl, 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 but nowhere will he yet bring himself to say uncle uh, in the style of abject surrender that's demanded of the lower orders. Well, Israel actually did hear the call for a political settlement, and it reacted at once by declaring that there could be no additional Palestinian state between Israel and Jordan. Jordan's a Palestinian state by Israeli fiat, whatever misguided Jordanians and Palestinians might think. Uh, Washington very quickly endorsed Israel's reaction. It's the James Baker Plan of December 1989. Uh, all of this has been uh, quite effectively excised from history. Uh, there's no need to sample the reflexive resort to the principle in imperial history, uh, one case that probably has not been forgotten by the victims, is uh, the attitudes of the Anglo-Iranian oil company administers uh, towards what they called the WAGs uh, during the glory days of the, uh, of the company. Uh, in their words, the only way to handle the WAGs is to browbeat them, to cow them into submission. Uh, with the iron fist always poised when such gentler means do not suffice. Uh, Iran's uh, brave and dignified uh, leader, Muhammad Mossadegh, it was subjected to ugly abuse and humiliation by the British government and the educated classes uh, in the U.S. too uh, because he sought to implement uh, Iran's right to take control of its own uh, reserves, resources. Uh, these incidentally are called our resources in internal documents, which by accident happen to be somewhere else. Uh, uh, Masada was a dedicated constitutionalist. He insisted on keeping the completely nonviolent means, like Allende, and he paid for it with the uh, U.S.-U.K. military coup in 1953, which was greatly lauded in the West. So the New York Times editors, for example, soberly explained that underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their number, which goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. It's perhaps too much to hope that uh, uh, Iran's experience will prevent the rise of Musadas in other countries 
But that experience may at least strengthen the hands of more reasonable and more far-seeing leaders who will have a clear-eyed understanding of the principles of decent behavior, meaning crawl properly and say uncle when you're supposed to. And it did for many years, though. Uh, by the 1970s, the tide of independent nationalism could no longer be crushed by violence. These attitudes are so close to the surface that they break through at the slightest provocation. Now, that happened at once when the WAGs asserted their rights in the early 70s and uh, sought to overcome the sharp decline in oil prices relative to other commodities, which had been so beneficial to the West uh, thanks to its effective controls. Uh, influential intellectual uh, Irving Kristol, he's one of the godfathers of contemporary conservatism, uh, he wrote that uh, insignificant nations, like insignificant people, can quickly experience delusions of significance, which have to be driven from their primitive minds by force. In truth, he explained, the days of gunboat diplomacy are never over. Gunboats are as necessary for international order as police cars are for domestic orders. Thoughts widely echoed. Uh, sometimes uh, humiliation can take slightly more subtle forms. One was the topic of a lecture here uh, two years ago in honor of Edward Said by Rashid Halidi. Uh, his title was uh, Human Dignity in Jerusalem. Perhaps some of you heard it. Uh, Halidi discussed a project of the Simon Wiesenthal Center which is dedicated to promotion of human rights and dignity. Uh, the project was to build a center for human dignity in Jerusalem. Uh, the site they chose uh, is uh, the Mamilla Cemetery in Jerusalem, the most venerated uh, Muslim burial place in Palestine where companions of the Prophet are reputedly buried and many other honored figures. Actually, parts had already been taken for a parking lot and the site of Israel's independent square. Uh, the idea of uh, desecrating a cemetery to construct a center for human dignity uh, could only occur to people so dedicated to humiliation of their victims that they can't perceive what they're doing. There was an appeal to bar the project. It was denied by the Israeli Supreme Court. Well, uh, finally, I'd like to say a few words on how these themes, which just run through history, how they arise in the foreign policy issues that are of primary significance uh, for U.S. policymakers and for the U.S. political class, at least if we judge by the presidential debates, uh, Chuck Hagel senatorial hearings, and the coverage they've received. In the, there was a foreign policy debate, the last of the debates before the election, uh, the two uh, contestants, uh, uh, the two countries predominated overwhelmingly, uh, Israel and Iran. Uh, Obama and Romney, two candidates, vied with each other in proclaiming their undying loyalty to Israel and in identifying Iran as the gravest threat to world peace. In the Hegel hearings, there were 136 mentions of Israel 
135 of Iran, uh, scattered mentions of mention of other countries and foreign policy issues. Uh, Hegel was berated by the Republicans, and it's crucial to remember that it was the Republicans, for being insufficiently loyal to Israel and not sufficiently dedicated to bombing Iran if it does not capitulate. Well, in the case of Israel, there's been a near-unanimous international consensus on a diplomatic settlement. It's been blocked by the United States for 35 years with tacit European acceptance. I've mentioned some of the reasons. A contempt for the worthless victims is no small part of the barrier to achieving a settlement with at least a modicum of justice and respect for human dignity and rights. It's not beyond imagination that the barrier can be overcome. It'll take dedicated work, as has happened in other cases. Uh, On Iran, I'd like to suggest to you, if you're not familiar with it, a fine talk by Jon Snow about a year ago at uh, Chatham House. Uh, Snow knows Iran very well. He had much of interest to say. Uh, His main point was that the West must overcome its contempt for Iran and its people. He ended the talk by calling for esteem, esteem, esteem. We should respect Iran, its history, its civilization, while also making it quite clear that uh, we condemn its government. We should engage with Iran by trade, uh, cultural interchange, other measures. He brings up one highly successful case, a cooperative uh, exhibition of uh, Iranian artistic treasures by the British Museum and Iran. Actually, there's another example, more recent. There was an international congress in Tehran last October on HIV-AIDS. American scientists participated. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago was the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the main scientific organization. Uh, The U.S. participants in the Tehran conference described Iran as a model for the rest of the region in its response to AIDS and added uh, that we can learn a lot from what Iranians are doing, or could, they add, if it weren't for the fact that these efforts are now being severely undermined by the harsh sanctions. Uh, But the most, going back to Snow, the most important step he emphasized would be to overcome the contempt that has guided the West for a century. It's primarily Britain, the United States, since it largely replaced Britain in 1953 when the two uh, overthrew the parliamentary uh, government, installed the harsh tyranny of the Shah. I won't review the disgraceful record of contempt and purposeful humiliation. Actually, it's explored in depth in a new book, the first the best scholarly study of the coup, uh, Ervand Abrahamian's very revealing work, which just appeared, it should evoke shame and uh, deep regret in Britain and the United States. And we should also remember that in the last 60 years, not a single day has passed when the U.S. and Britain were not brutally punishing Iranians, uh, first by installing and backing the Shah, uh, then by supporting 
Saddam Hussein's aggression, then harsh sanctions, now the open threat of war, which is a violation of the UN Charter, if any sentimentalists among you care. Uh, the current issue is uh, Iran's nuclear programs. Uh, interesting to ask who shares the Western perception, the obsession, that this is the greatest threat to world peace. And that question's pretty easy to answer. The obsession is not shared by the non-aligned countries. It's most of the world. Uh, they continue their vigorous support, outspoken support for Iran's right to enrich uranium as signers of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, it's not shared in the Arab world, where the population dislikes Iran uh, for all kind of reasons that go way back, uh, but does not consider it much of a threat. Now, the population does perceive threats, primarily Israel and the United States. Uh, the people I'm talking about, uh, Western commentary keeps to the oil dictators who do see Iran as a threat. This helps explain why the West is so opposed to democracy in the Arab world. If you had any disregarding the usual boilerplate, if you have some kind of functioning democracy, public opinion has some sort of influence on policy. And the last thing that the West wants is for policy to focus on the threats that are perceived of the U.S. and Israel and not on the threat that the West is obsessed with, uh, the alleged threat of Iran. Well, secondly, whatever the threat's alleged to be, uh, is there a way to address it, short of sanctions that punish the population and war? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Uh, one approach would be to uh, revive, uh, try to revive, uh, the Tehran Agreement of May 2010. Uh, then uh, Tehran, Iran, accepted a Turkish-Brazilian proposal to send a low enriched uranium for storage abroad in Turkey and uh, the, to have the nuclear powers uh, satisfy Iran's uh, needs for uh, 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 needs for its medical reactors. Uh, the U.S. government and the media bitterly condemned Turkey and Brazil for overcoming the greatest threat to world peace. And Obama quickly rushed through uh, new sanctions at the United Nations. Uh, the U.S. refused to accept yes for an answer, as quoting Muhammad al-Baradai, the former head of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, the Brazilian foreign minister was rather annoyed by this. Uh, he released a letter uh, from Obama to President uh, Lula da Silva of Brazil uh, proposing exactly uh, what Turkey and Brazil had achieved. Uh, presumably, Obama was assuming that Iran would reject the proposal and get some propaganda points. Uh, the incident was glossed over rather quietly, uh, but the option may remain uh, one of several. And there's also a broader approach to the problem, uh, which is worth thinking seriously about. Uh, it was vigorously, it's, it was actually uh, proposed by the non-aligned conference that met in uh, Tehran last August, it renewed a long-standing proposal which has been vigorously advanced by Egypt in particular for many years and has such overwhelming international support that 
Washington has been compelled to express its formal agreement, but only formal reservations that can't do it. Uh, it's also supported by uh, some of the most prominent uh, U.S. and Israeli strategic analysts. Uh, that proposal would be to establish, uh, to move towards establishing a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region. If even steps were taken towards that, it would mitigate whatever crisis is perceived might be a way to end them. Well, an opportunity to carry forward the program arose uh, last December. An international conference was to be held in Finland uh, to move towards implementation under UN auspices. Uh, in November, Iran agreed to attend. A few days later, Obama canceled the conference. Uh, the core issue, of course, is that the U.S. will not allow Israel's nuclear weapons to be subject to inspection or even discussion. Well, a few days after Obama canceled the conference, uh, the U.N. General Assembly passed a resolution uh, calling on Israel to join the Non-Proliferation Treaty. 174 to 6. Uh, joining Israel in voting no were the United States, Canada, several U.S. Pacific Island dependencies. I didn't check, but I suspect that Britain abstained. Uh, the U.S. then proceeded to carry out a nuclear weapons test, uh, once again banning international inspectors from the test site. Uh, shortly after that, a meeting took place uh, under the auspices of uh, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. It's an offshoot of the Israeli lobby. The press likes to pretend that they're independent experts. Uh, the, uh, 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 there was an enthusiastic report in the Israeli press. Uh, it said that uh, Dennis Ross, uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, other former top advisors to Obama and Bush assured the audience that the president, I'm quoting it, the president will strike Iran next year if diplomacy doesn't succeed. Well, one reason why diplomacy won't succeed is that there's no protest against what's happening. And there can't be. There can't be any protest for the failure of diplomacy uh, or efforts to seek uh, the, to end the greatest threat to world peace for a very simple reason. Uh, Hardly a word about these recent events. In fact, virtually nothing has been reported in the United States. It's a, another interesting illustration of how spe free speech can be restricted in a very free society with essentially no government coercion. I haven't investigated, but I suspect that the same is true here. You can tell me. Uh, there are other possibilities, uh, none can be seriously pursued uh, unless the powerful are capable of learning to respect the dignity of their victims. If this is beyond their means, uh, impassable barriers will remain and the world will be doomed to violence, cruelty, and bitter suffering. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you, Professor Chomsky. What we're going to do is we'll go around this way. Um, we have microphones all over the, um, the hall. Uh, I can't actually see everything, but um, let's start this way if you would like to. Yes, go on. Hello, Professor Chomsky. I am perturbed by two questions of moral philosophy. The first one is concerning Peter Singer. Is he right on animal rights? And my second question is on inequities at birth. We can't redistribute IQ, height, good looks, talent. We can redistribute wealth and income. Does this have any moral significance at all? Thank you. Well, just out of curiosity, uh, do you kill insects? Like mosquitoes when they're bothering you? Or do you think that uh, when mosquitoes are carrying malaria, uh, we ought to develop uh, uh, means to kill them off? Uh, question. Okay, that's part of the answer. You can pursue. Sure, animals should have rights. But uh, none of us believe that animal, including Peter Singer, that uh, animals should have the rights of human beings. And there are good reasons for that. Uh, rights don't exist in a vacuum if you're talking about moral philosophy. Uh, rights are associated with responsibilities. Uh, we don't attribute any responsibilities at all to other uh, uh, animals, do we? I mean, we don't say that a, a lion has to be sent to the gas chamber if it kills a gazelle, let's say. No, they don't have responsibilities. And that, of course, if in moral philosophy, now just abstract discussion, uh, relates to the question of what their rights are. And uh, you can, I mean, they should have rights. So, for example, it's a step forward in our general uh, kind of moral development that uh, uh, animals are not uh, subjected to torture in the way they were just a few years ago. So in Britain and the United States, there are now constraints on uh, the torture, what we call experiment, torture of uh, uh, at least animals that are closer to us, like primates, uh, than there were 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, so yes, we're developing some sort of conception of uh, rights, but I don't think anyone thinks that animals have the rights and responsibilities of human beings. Okay, then we can enter into the details. Uh, what was the second question? What was the second question? Oh, yeah, Is about it, IQ. No, not uh, about, about general gifts that we are born with. Okay, I mean, like, you know, the, somebody asked me to before to sign uh, a picture and told me that she had only once before asked someone to sign a picture, some tennis champion. Okay. Well, I'm never going to be a tennis champion, so uh, good. I'm, I'm not sorry that he has those talents, which I don't have. I mean, I'm not sorry that uh, people can play the violin in ways I can't dream of or, and so on. I think that's great. Otherwise, it'd be an extremely boring world. So yes, people have all sorts of uh, qualities and capacities. I think you mentioned IQ. That's one of the least significant of them. I mean, whatever it is, it's some very marginal phenomenon. But, uh, it's, uh... Okay.
Anyone on that side? But there are real ones, and I think it's great. Sure, there should be a very complex world in which people can do different things, and we can admire and enjoy what they do. Okay. Do you want to go here since there's no one there? Thank you. Um, Professor Chomsky, this is Amesh um, Amirza from Ceasefire magazine. Uh, we did an interview with you in the spring of 2011 as the uh, revolutions were sweeping the Arab world. And at the time, um, when I asked you about Syria, the picture was not very clear. And I was wondering, two years now down the line, what your thoughts were on the situation there. And if I could be allowed a second minor question. Prospect magazine um, runs a poll of the greatest intellectual in the world. And for the first two polls, I think I'm sure you're familiar with, 10 years ago and five years ago, you were either the top uh, intellectual or uh, number two, I think, based on popular votes. This year, they've asked a number of people, including peop you know, such luminaries as Bernard-Henri Lévy and, and so on, to um, pick a, a shortlist of 65 on which you do not appear. And I was wondering whether you had any comments on that. I didn't have any comments when the first one appeared because it's a joke and don't have any comments on the later ones. Although there were some interesting reactions to the first one. Uh, one of the main columnists for the Financial Times, uh, Gideon Rachman, I think his name is, uh, wrote a blog in which he said, we have to organize people to make sure to prevent me from getting on the list next time. I thought that was amusing, but uh, if there's any other interest in it, I don't know what it is. It's a joke. Uh, as far as Syria is concerned, I mean, it's a tragedy. The country's move, moving towards some sort of suicide. Uh, as to what we ought to do, I, I think you ought to turn around and ask him. Uh, I'd suggest reading Patrick Coburn's column and... Uh, the Independent yesterday, I think that's about right. Uh, arming the factions is just going to make it worse. Uh, every, as far as I know, almost just about everyone who knows anything about Syria and who cares about it pretty much agrees on this. Uh, I don't know that much, but uh, in fact, only what I read. But uh, it seems to be a pretty general understanding that the only hope is some kind of move toward negotiations and diplomacy which will settle a conflict which otherwise is simply going to destroy this society. And there are proposals, uh, Lakhdar Brahimi's proposals, uh, which you know, to, to implement them is not going to be easy. They certainly can't be implemented if nobody supports them. As far as I know, the only countries that support them are Russia and Iran, Iraq maybe. Well, we should ask ourselves, should we be supporting I think it wouldn't be a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, number two there. Um, does the anti-Zionist left risk undermining itself if it doesn't also highlight Hamas's abuses of its own people, including violent crackdowns on supposed Western decadence and the recent banning of women from the Gaza Marathon? So you're asking whether Hamas is harming the Palestinian cause, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not a great admirer of Hamas by any means. Uh, when I was in Gaza, I met uh, Ismail Haniya. We talked about some of these things. Uh, the, uh, uh, 
the Islamic movements in general have many very negative aspects like uh, religious-based movements everywhere. Um, and I think uh, to take something that's closer to my direct interest, the enormous and growing power of the Christian right, fundamentalist Christian right in the United States, is, I think, not only a danger to the country but to the world uh, because of U.S. power. And it's a striking phenomenon. It actually revealed itself in the Hegel hearings. It wasn't much commented on, but I'm sure you followed those hearings. But uh, uh, Jewish money and uh, Jewish votes overwhelmingly go to Democrats. Okay? But the Democrats defended Hegel. Uh, the Republicans denounced him. Uh, why? Well, I think a lot of it is appealing to their, to their popular base. Uh, extremist Christian fundamentalists who have a theology that uh, says uh, we have to have a war in the Middle East, uh, end up in Armageddon, everybody slaughters each other, uh, the souls that have been saved rise to heaven, everybody else goes to eternal perdition. Uh, that incidentally includes all Jews except for some reason 144,000 who discover Christ in time and they're saved. Well, in order to bring this about, you have to have a war. So therefore you have to support, uh, you have to blow up the Temple Mount. You know, you have to, and it goes on and on like this. Um, just today, uh, today, this morning's paper, one of their uh, great heroes, uh, Rand Paul, probably be a presidential candidate, uh, announced legislation to uh, declare a fertilized cell, a person, okay? That means that a fertilized cell uh, can't, is, uh, has all the rights of a person, can't, can't be killed, so no abortion, for example. Well, those are the kinds of policies that will indeed be implemented as these groups become more powerful. And uh, they're becoming more powerful for a pretty simple reason. If you take a look at American politics, the the Republican Party over the last couple of decades has pretty much abandoned the pretense of being, being a normal parliamentary party. They're in lockstep service to the extremely rich and to the corporate sector. You can't get votes that way. So what they've had to do is mobilize sectors of the population that have always been there. It's in many ways a very strange society. They've always been there, uh, religious extremists, uh, nativists. Uh, so Rand Paul, again, is organizing a campaign to oppose the uh, UN's arms control treaty. Uh, arms, you know, exported arms are killing, uh, who knows how many people throughout the world. In Mexico, you know, like 60,000 in the last couple of years, huge numbers elsewhere. But we have to oppose it because the you. UN Arms Control Treaty is a plot by the United Nations and abetted by the extremists, uh, Obama and Clinton, to try to take away our arms so then the UN can attack us and eliminate our sovereignty. You think that's a small thing? It's not. Uh, you look at the gun, con the gun lunacy in the United States. A lot of it is driven by the fear that we have to have guns to protect ourselves from the government and from the United Nations and other 
forces that are about to take us over. Well, this is really important. I could go on. This is really important. Uh, you know, what's, what Hamas is doing, I think, is very bad. But this is incomparably worse. Just next to yeah. And then Lada. Um, Professor Chomsky, do you think Israel will exist in 50 years' time? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I visited uh, Israel during the first intifada, and uh, an old friend of mine, Israeli, uh, uh, a very dovish Israeli, uh, asked me the same question. Uh, do you think Israel will exist in 50 years? And... Uh, I feel and felt what I've been writing for the last 50 years or so, that Israel's following policies, which maximize its security threats, and they're doing it for good reasons. A lot of, a lot of states do this. Security is not, a, um, it's a, it's not a high priority for governments. I mean, you see it right here, England. Like when the, if you followed the Chilcot hearings, the, you know, reviewing the Iraq war. The, uh, the head of, former head of uh, MI5 uh, testified that, uh, what we more or less knew, that uh, when the U.S. and Britain decided to invade Iraq, uh, they did it on the assumption that it would considerably increase terrorism. Well, actually it did way more than was anticipated, about sevenfold in the first year, according to U.S. government statistics. But it's just not an interest. Governments are not all that interested in protecting their citizens from terror and destruction. There's many cases like this. Uh, some of them are totally horrendous. We've just passed the 50th anniversary of uh, the worst moment in human history, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. When you go through the details, uh, Kennedy, President Kennedy was willing to face what he considered a third to a half probability of what would have been a ter terminal nuclear war, in order to establish the principle that we're allowed to have missiles surrounding Russia, including in Turkey, actually obsolete missiles which are being removed in favor of more powerful ones. We're entitled to have that. We're entitled to have recently emplaced missiles on Okinawa facing China. But nobody else is allowed to have missiles anywhere outside their territory. That was the principle. Um, it's covered up in various ways. But it's hard to think of a worse moment than that. And that's illustrative of the way states think about the security of their own uh, population. So in the case of Israel, I don't think they're breaking any, uh, you know, making, breaking any precedents when they follow policies which uh, uh, choose expansion over security. And sometimes it's very explicit. So I think one of the most fateful moments in Israel's history was in 1971, when President Sadat of Egypt uh, offered Israel a full peace treaty, a uh, full peace treaty, uh, offering nothing to the Palestinians, incidentally, uh, in return for Israeli withdrawal from Egyptian territory. Well, you know, for Israeli security, that would have been uh, a quite a step forward, but they preferred uh, to pursue the plans for rapid expansion of settlements into the Sinai. And they were backed by Henry Kissinger. You can always count on him to take the position that will be the most harmful to human beings. Rarely missed. But uh, 
So, yes, I think, and that's consistent ever since. Like a lot of other states, they're following policies which uh, lead to their moral degradation, their isolation, their delegitimation, as they call it now, and uh, very likely ultimate destruction. That's not impossible. Thank you for an absolutely wonderful lecture, Professor Chomsky. Um, I want to ask you to speculate about how you see the future for the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. In particular, I'm thinking of the two-state, one-state debate uh, and wondering where you stand on that. Um, as somebody who's observed this for so many years, your opinion is extremely valuable and important, I think, for this audience and many other people. Well, right now, if we're realistic about it, there are two options. What's discussed almost universally, Israelis, Palestinians, others, is two states or one state. But those are not the two options. The two options are two states or Israel and the U.S. continue doing exactly what they're doing right now. Those are the two options. Uh, and I won't run through what they're doing right now, but you can, I'm sure you know, you can go through the details. They're basically systematically continuing to separate Gaza from the West Bank, turning, keeping Gaza as a kind of a prison, uh, uh, imprisoning what remains of the West Bank in the way I described, and taking over probably maybe 40 percent of, uh, of the land, anything that's valuable. Now, that's what's happening before our eyes, and that's the alternative, and it's backed by, strongly backed by the United States and uh, pretty much backed by Britain and other European countries, whatever their rhetoric. Uh, that's the likely policy if there isn't a two-state settlement. Now, what about one state, or what in my view more reasonable days used to be called a binational state, because it will be a binational state? Uh, personally, uh, all my life, I've supported that, uh, back to the 1940s when I was what was then called a Zionist youth activist opposed to a Jewish state. That was part of the Zionist movement at the time. Uh, so, yeah, I thought the Jewish state's a really bad idea, and groups I were with, kind of left groups, were looking for Arab-Jewish working-class cooperation to lead to a binational state. Uh, well, if we're interested in this, and we want not just to talk about it, but to try to reach it, which I assume we should, then we have to answer a question. How do you get from here to there? Okay, you know, everybody can be in favor of, say, uh, eliminating uh, nuclear weapons, but it doesn't help very much to say it. I have to say, how do we get there? You know, all right, so take this question, how do we get there? Uh, Pre-1948, there was a straightforward answer. You just move immediately towards establishing that. And there were prospects, I think. Uh, from 49 up till about 67, there were essentially no prospects. From 67 to the mid-70s, there were, again, prospects. I wrote about it a lot at the time. Uh, it would have been possible, and there was actually some support for this in 
Israeli military intelligence and some parts of the Palestinian movement for moving towards some kind of federation uh, which could lead to closer integration and so on. Well, uh, it, uh, nobody was interested, so it died. By, not, by the mid-'70s, uh, that option was gone uh, uh, because Palestinian national rights had entered the international agenda. Before that, in the international agenda, Palestinians were refugees, you know, so nothing about the Palestinian national rights. Uh, once they entered the international agenda and the policy of of most of the world outside the U.S. became to move towards a two-state settlement, uh, then there was a new option. Uh, the first proposal for a two-state settlement, incidentally, was in January 1976, formal proposal, when the major, three major Arab states, uh, Syria, Egypt, and Jordan, so-called confrontation states, brought a resolution to the Security Council calling for establishment of two states on the internationally recognized border uh, with, um, and the wording was taken from UN 242, or guarantees for the right of every state, Israel and New Palestinian state, to exist in peace and security with secure and recognized borders. That's, that's basically the international consensus now. Uh, the U.S. vetoed it. Okay. Again, in 1980, I won't run through the rest of the record, but uh, uh, since that time, the U.S., with the quiet support of its allies, like Britain, uh, has been undermining it. Well, you know, um, if it was realized, and I don't think it's beyond realization, uh, then there could be further moves. Uh, in, uh, every time in the past when tensions have been somewhat reduced, you know, cycle of violence has been reduced, you very quickly see interactions across the borders. I mean, anyone who's ever been in the former Palestine knows you just can't draw a border through it. I mean, any border you draw is totally crazy. Uh, so what happens is uh, people start uh, commercial interactions, cultural exchanges, and so on. Now, that could lead to closer integration and maybe to some kind of federation, and then maybe on. Incidentally, I don't think that that should be the final goal that we should be thinking about. Actually, I'll just tell you a personal anecdote. And my first visit to Le Lebanon, which was inadvertent, uh, was in 1953. And my wife and I were students, and uh, we were backpacking up in northern Israel. And uh, by accident, we happened to walk into Lebanon. There's no meaningful border, you know, like every other border in the world. It's just something arbitrarily imposed by imperial violence. No reason to worship it. A jeep came by and a guy yelled at us, we're in the wrong country, we should come back. <laughs> so we came back. But, uh, you know, I, I would think that if, if you can reach some kind of binational settlement, the next stage ought to be uh, eroding the imperial borders, not just there, in a lot of places. I think that would be very healthy. And frankly, I think, realistically, that's the only framework in which I think there's likely to be some meaningful approach to the huge Palestinian refugee problem. Could be. And so that's a possibility. I mean, if there are other options, I'd like to hear them. I've just never heard anything else except I'd like this. Well, okay, there are a lot of things we'd like, but how do you get there? Hmm. 
You are upstairs, uh, number five, please. Hello, Professor Chomsky. Uh, we queued outside to hear your lecture today, and I'm so glad we managed to come in. I was born in Mexico City, and my best friends uh, in my building and in my colonia or borough um, were from the Jewish religion. When my mother was growing up, she went to a nun's school, but her best friends in her borough, in El Zócalo, were Syrio-Libanese. When I grew up, the best friends I had were the sons and daughters of those who had flown from Franco. And when I became an adult, my best friends were the sons and daughters of Chileans who had run away from Allende. Allende or from Pinochet? I mean, from Pinochet. And, yeah. and, the, and the ones who had uh, refuged themselves from yeah. the Allende camp. Sorry. Um, and I'm talking of very senior people in Mexico. Um, so you spoke of Latin America with two fronts, the one with hope and the one which is trying to maybe make business with the uranium for with. Iran. Could you uh, tell a Latin American what to expect of her homeland and whether there is a seed of hope there with all these tolerance, like the Londoners who are gathered here tonight? Yeah, I mean, Mexico is, is very much as you described. It's, it's been a center for refugee flow. Uh, remember then, you know, we're all, everyone uh, knows everything about uh, the horrors of Eastern Europe. You know, anyone can reel off the European dissidents who were badly treated and so on. Uh, like, say, Václav Havel is put in prison for a while. You know, not nice. But I, just as an experiment, how many of you can even know the names of the leading Latin American intellectuals, Jesuit priests, who had their brains blown out in 1989 by a U.S.-run state terrorist force, which had already killed thousands of people and had just returned from uh, renewed training at the John F. Kennedy School of Special Warfare. Uh, just the last, you know, the, la the end, not even end, but uh, of a major war against the church that the United States was conducting after Vatican II, which is much in the news now, because Vatican II uh, introduced a heresy. Uh, the heresy was to go back to the Gospels and, uh, uh, in other words, to what the church was before the Romans took it as a, you know, the church of the empire. And uh, Vatican II called for a return to the Gospels, you know, radical pacifist message, uh, preferential option for the poor. It was taken seriously in Latin America, as I'm sure you know. Uh, priests and uh, nuns, uh, lay people went out into the villages and organized base communities, had people read the Gospels, think about how to take control of their own lives. Uh, I mean, that's a in, totally intolerable heresy. I mean, the Vatican played its role in crushing it, but the U.S. just went to war. And it's not a secret. The uh, famous School of the Americas, which uh, trains Latin American killers, uh, one of their talking points, you know, advertising points, is that the U.S. Army helped defeat liberation theology. 
the liberation theology was the effort to bring the Gospels back to the church. And it was a very bloody campaign. Of course, most of the people killed were, you know, peasants, uh, working people, the usual victims. But there was a long strain of religious martyrs, like those I mentioned, and plenty of others. But nobody here knows them. I mean, you know, maybe some of you, maybe you know them, but very few people could even mention their names. And the uh, crimes in Latin America through the, say, from 1960 to up to now are far worse than what was going on in Eastern Europe during the same years. But we only know the others uh, because somebody else was committing the crime. So we're, we're supposed to know about them and deplore them and so on and so forth, not the ones we're killing. Well, uh, is there a way to overcome this? Yeah, there is, and I think it's going on in Latin America. The development that I mentioned in the last uh, 10 or 15 years I think is of really historic importance in overcoming this legacy. And it's not just the last 60 years. Uh, after all, this is the first time in half a millennium since the conquistadors that uh, Latin America has begun to free itself from uh, imperial control. And the, the changes are dramatic. And what I mentioned about globalizing torture is one case, but many others. I mean, a long way to go, but uh, it's... I think it's pretty hopeful, one of the more hopeful things in the world. As for the uranium, I I don't think that amounts to very much. Latin America doesn't provide uranium. I'm just going to have to take two more questions only, I'm afraid, because we're running out of time. Can we take number three? Hi, Noam. I want to ask a question about the effectiveness of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement with relation to Israel. I'm part of an organization called Football Beyond Borders, and we're campaigning to get the upcoming UEFA Under-21 football tournament moved away from Israel, um, or if that fails, to mobilize a massive boycott of the tournament. Do you think these kinds of boycotts are effective, and can they have the same global impact as the sports boycotts against apartheid South Africa? I think these are useful tactics, but we should recognize that there's a pretty striking difference between the current, uh, what's called by the participants the BDS movement, and uh, the resort to these tactics in the case of South Africa. There was no BDS movement in the case of South Africa. Rather, there was often quite careful use of these tactics when they were appropriate. And it was selective and thoughtful. The sports boycott was important. It was against racial uh, exclusion in the sports teams. And a lot of it was carefully designed for, you know, everything wasn't perfect, but the reason it was successful was that there were several conditions that were understood by the participants. Uh, One of them is that first, you have to have a long educational program so that people understand what you're doing. Uh, BDS-type tactics uh, began seriously around, pretty much around maybe the late 70s. Uh, That was after decades of uh, educational work, organization. Uh, By then, apartheid was uh, practically, it was condemned by just about everyone, uh, even corporations. In fact, the Congress was beginning to pass sanctions. In fact, Reagan, who was an incredible racist, had to, uh, uh, he had to 
evade congressional sanctions. He tried to veto them, but they were passed over as veto, and then he had to evade them to keep supporting uh, South Africa for interesting reasons. That was part of his war on terror. Uh, remember that uh, the war on terror began in 1981, not 2001, and uh, it was the focus of U.S. foreign policy. And uh, the ANC, the African National Congress, was designated as, quoting, one of the more notorious terrorist groups in the world. That was 1988, right near the end of apartheid. Uh, Nelson Mandela himself just got off the terrorist list a couple of years ago. He can now come to the United States without uh, special dispensation. So you had to defend white South Africans from terrorism. That sounds familiar today. Uh, but he had lost the public on that. I mean, the public had turned against it. They were ready for stronger actions. Notice that we're nowhere near that in the case of Israel today, not even close. Uh, secondly, the use of these tactics in the best cases, and a lot of them were good, uh, paid attention to two crucial questions. Uh, what's their impact on the society that we're sanctioning? Like, do they... Uh, produce a cost for the society. Okay. Well, that's important. Uh, and secondly, what's their... Uh, how do they appeal to the audience that we're trying to reach? The audience we're trying to reach is people here. Uh, these efforts are, as in the case of South Africa, are, an eff are part of the educational program of getting people to recognize we've got to do something to bring these crimes to an end. So you have to ask yourself, well, are the tactics well adapted to that? Or do they have the opposite effect? I mean, are they so remote from the understanding of the people you're trying to reach that they alienate them and they become uh, more supportive of the crimes? Uh, activist movements and nationalist movements have always understood this. So, for example, I can remember uh, long discussions with the Vietnamese back in 1960s, about what were the right tactics to use. And they were strongly opposed to a lot of the tactics that were used by the young people who were deeply committed to ending the war, like uh, the weathermen, you know, march down the street and break, uh, break bank windows and so on. Uh, they thought that was just totally crazy because they understood that it harms them. It just builds up support for the war. Uh, what they wanted is, uh, I was telling Mariam before, one of the main, I remember when they suggested as a tactic, this is a period of real militancy in the United States, they suggested, they said what they really liked was when a group of women in the United States uh, went to the graves of American soldiers and stood silently. They thought that was a great tactic. Well, you know, that didn't much appeal to kids who, for good reasons, were pretty upset by the war and wanted to do something more militant. But if you care about the victims, that's the kind of question you ask. Uh, and uh, it was done pretty well, I think, you know, not perfectly in the South African movement. And those are the considerations that have to be thought through. But there was never a BDS movement with uh, principles, you know, that you had to adhere to and so on. And never. And that was wise, I think. So they're good tactics. They can be used effectively, but you have to think about them. You have to think about all the aspects of them.
There's one last question up there. Number four hasn't had any uh, share. Whoever's got the microphone. <laughs> we'll give, it, we'll give you a bonus. Okay. I have recently become acquainted with the global commons movement that promotes trusteeship and stewardship instead of ownership of land. Currently, we live in a system that protects the ownership of land. Okay. Oops. Do you think that land ownership in its current form, which hemorrhages the land's produce and resources, profits, into the pockets of the landowner, plays a part in our current wars? I mean, what you describe is almost by definition something we should obviously be opposed to. But... Uh uh, you know, it's, it's not really a large part of the current wars. I mean, a lot of this, incidentally, is being carried out by countries like Saudi Arabia and others who are buying up big pieces of Africa. And uh, they're not the only ones to try to convert, uh, convert it to agricultural production, which they need. Uh, they're doing a lot of purchase of land, but that's not, it's not right. It's not contributing to wars. Uh, the uh, Western countries are uh, not really, tr you know, like when they invade Iraq or Afghanistan, are not trying to buy up the land. Um, they have all kind of you know, strategic and economic reasons, but uh, not to buy the land. It's a, it's a bad thing you know, here in our own countries, too, and it should be dealt with, but I think you know, without misrepresenting the kind of context in which it takes place. Very much. I'm going to just end with a housekeeping note. If you're interested in uh, buying some signed copies of uh, Professor Shomsky's book, please come out this way. If you're fed up with us and want to leave as fast as possible, go through the back. And finally, I want to thank you all for your support and thank you, Professor Shomsky. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.